the Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australian complementary medicine profession. Nominations are now open for the 2018 Beamer Awards. For more information and to book your ticket to the gala dinner, visit bioceuticals.com.au slash BIMA. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us again on the line today is Ananda Mark for part two of our series on naturopathic pain management. Ananda works with people who are struggling with chronic ongoing pain caused by a wide range of conditions such as neuropathy, functional issues such as migraines, IBS and fibromyalgia and autoimmune injury related pain amongst others. A naturopath for 20 years, Ananda has been in clinical practice for 12 years and now has a specific focus on chronic and acute pain management. Ananda is a nutrition lecturer at Endeavour College of Natural Health in Brisbane and is a clinician in two successful integrative practices in Brisbane. She has a passion for education and continued learning which has led her to undertake her postgraduate studies in human nutrition at Deakin University and more recently Ananda has moved on to a Masters in the Science of Pain Management at Sydney University to align more closely with her special interest in clinical practice. Ananda is a member of the Australian Pain Society and the International Association for the Study of Pain. Welcome again to FX Medicine, Ananda. And today we're going to be investigating holistic pain relief. How are you? Great, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. My absolute honour. Um, I've got to say, the, the way that you treat patients, and it is truly holistically with care, I just I adore, I love the way you, you see through the issues that present in your clinic to um, encompass a, a holistic approach. So well done to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Now, we're going to dive right in um, to the topic from our first podcast. So I'm going to just ask you straight off the bat our first question, and that is, how effective are nutrients and herbs in relieving pain? Um, well, Andrew, they can be effective. But unlike acute pain, chronic pain is a very different beast. And there's no single drug or therapy that will ever achieve lasting benefit for mm. chronic pain. Mm. And I did say um, nutrient, herb, or therapy. And so really, I think if we just focus on a very narrow biomedical um, single nutrient or even unimodal approach, we're not going to get lasting change. So, of course, um, nutrients and herbs with naturopaths are part of a holistic approach, but I would argue that there e we need to step even outside of our holistic approach and into a, a multi-modality approach. And nice. so then using herbs and nutrients in context, in that context, yes, they may be of significant benefit. But I think it's all the little approaches, the, the 1%, the 2%, the 10% that all add up over time to lasting change for chronic pain. And so if we think about herbs in that context, say they're and nutrients, that 10% or 5% of treatment, they're an important 5 or 10% of treatment, but they're just a small part of a much larger treatment approach. So I, I guess part of that 
sort of question about efficacy mm. is involves cost. Um, and when you consider that there's so many millions of dollars spent on pain relief, how cost effective are nutrients and herbs given the right mm. sort of situation? Yeah, I think they, they can be cost effective, but I probably will go then for, you know, to give you some real um, data on that. Um, I don't have anything concrete in Australia, but they have done research looking at um, complementary multimodal approaches, so um, chiropractic herbs, massage, acupuncture, so multimodal approaches even with the complementary and um, within complementary medicine. And they've looked at that approach and looked at cost effectiveness in at the US context and shown that for low back pain in particular, because that's what they studied in a couple of um, research approaches, yeah. that it is quite cost effective. Mm. Um, I can't give you exact numbers. I just recall the research rather than the specific um, the numbers. But, yes, it had, they have been shown. And that incorporated the use of nutrients and herbs. You twigged my memory. I, I actually um, recall a study on massage in cardiac surgery patients. And the, the research was done by Endeavour in Melbourne. And it was carried out from Professor Frank Rosenfeld and his group, the Integrative Cardiac Wellness Group. You can look that one up at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, where they found that just massaging the feet. Now, the reason they chose the feet is because you had drips, drains and cracked chest and sutures and a lot of painful areas in the main trunk of the body. So they didn't want to do shoulder or um, back massage and things like that because it was, it was really inappropriate. So what they did is a foot massage. Now, think about that. It's a foot massage. And they had yeah. massive reductions in pain relief needed in inotropes, uh, in, like incredible results. The interesting yeah. thing I pull out here is the importance of human interaction, but just that oh, touch, yes. therapeutic touch. Yes, indeed. And in fact, there is some research, I think, looking at massage with regard to um, opioid withdrawal and um, showing that that can be an effective part of opioid withdrawal. Again, I'd have to dig out that research because I'm just remembering yeah, you know, from fine. your remembering. Um, but also on the aspect of social um, interaction, that is huge in chronic pain management. And if we look at the biopsychosocial approach, social is significant when it, um, contributor to, or I should say isolation is a significant contributor to chronic pain. And part of the therapy in chronic pain is getting people re-engaged um, with their friends, their families, with activities and, and or returning to work. So building relationships to support them and help pull them out of the situations that they've got into through chronic pain, yeah. such as isolation and withdrawal and, you know, maybe not returning to work. So, yes, social interaction from a foot massage to engaging with others is, is mm. a significant part of treatment in chronic pain. What about, um, I remember reading a Cochrane um, review on herbal therapies for low back pain, and it involved um, devil's claw, white willow, salix alba, yep. capsicum, which normally is that nociceptive sort of antagonism. Uh, and it was for low back pain. So it was a positive review of herbs for low back pain. That is a positive review. It showed, I think, low to moderate impact for um, low back pain. 
But if you look at the research overall, um, and there is a meta-analysis that looked at um, 76 different studies of all different types, all unimodal approaches from acupuncture to surgery to herbs to um, physical exercise, and it was at really 30 different, 36, I think, different modalities, and it showed that in isolation, none of them will have lasting impact for the majority of people. Right. So I again come back to taking a unimodal approach, even if that Cochrane review was positive, which is fantastic that it was because at least it showcases herbs as being beneficial, um, that's only a small part of the treatment. And so we have to kind of hold on to those and use those tools in our in our approach of chronic pain and particularly lower back pain but don't think we can just rely on those as being the sole or primary treatment or management. Does this answer the question about why when you get single nutrients and herbs used like for instance magnesium with cramps that it doesn't work very well? You know curcumin in various studies doesn't seem to inhibit NF-kappa-B and yet Mm. it works with osteoarthritis um, symptoms. Yep. Where do we go with what sort of studies we need to be looking at to do them properly? Do we need well, a multimodality approach here? Yes, I think so because um, chronic pain isn't a linear relationship with no susceptive drive. We've got to look at all of those input or those drivers that are coming into chronic pain and I would love to see unimodal approaches and um, whole uh, case um, you know, researching whole cases yeah. rather than just an aspect of that. But I don't know what that would look like necessarily. But um, it, I think it would be. I think it's really critical to start looking at outcomes associated with multimodal approaches and studying those both from an, an, an effectiveness perspective for pain relief, but also cost effectiveness, as we talked about before. Um, you know, see how they actually start to work. And currently, there is some research in pain medicine and the biopsychosocial approaches showing benefit in, you know, in different areas, say return to work and cost effectiveness. But that doesn't incorporate really important therapies that, such as complementary medicines that have a lot to offer um, a multimodal approach to chronic pain. And I would love to see that research coming out of our fields, out of our industry and professions, mm. and to see if we could contribute that kind of research. For me, it's not on the cards at the moment, though, Andrew, <laughs> even though I'd love to see it. <laughs> It'd be good because one of the things which I see a lot of naturopaths basically do a face palm about is when you get these studies that use inappropriate dose, inappropriate timing, inappropriate formulation, and then they wonder why they've got a negative result. And it's very frustrating. And I should also mention here, it's very much like when you get an expert like Professor um, Michael Hollick in vitamin D, and he just face palms when he sees these studies, which he has in many cases advised the investigators that they're doing it wrong from the outset. And they do not listen. They continue using an inappropriately low dose and wonder why, quote unquote, vitamin D doesn't work. And yet the researchers that are using the appropriate dosing, the appropriate levels, the appropriate timing, the appropriate population groups. And I guess that, the, you know, the perfect, the poster child is obviously curcumin with pain, but it's yeah. not, it's not a, it's not an opioid. It doesn't work like that. 
No, it doesn't. I think it has a lot of different um, mechanisms that can be useful for chronic pain, uh, even, you know, from, say, peripheral, um, from a peripheral and a central perspective. When, although when I look at um, chronic pain, I tend to work with more centrally mediated um, drivers. Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess there's... I have to go back a little bit. When you're working with chronic pain, it can um, impact across many different disease station, states and functional disorders. Yes. So, of course, you would be working with whatever the, the underlying disease drivers of peripheral input would be, be that rheumatoid arthritis to low back pain to um, neuropathy. You'd certainly be working on that level. But when I kind of narrow it down to working with what happens in chronic pain, Curcumin has a number of different um, benefits. And the first one is it can reduce inflammation that in the periphery that's driving incoming input or driving danger signals from the periphery that are interpreted as pain. But then the big one, I think, with um, um, curcumin or turmeric is that it modulates that neuroimmune interface. Um, and that's where there's an amplification of responses in the central nervous system. So pain, uh, so the messages come in and there's an amplification amplification of pain perception in the central nervous system. And that's the, the glial adaptations. And I think curcumin can help quite effectively there to dampen down the activators of glial activity and dampen down the output of glial activity and that glial activity directly correlates with the degree of pain and the amplification of pain responses. So we're seeing that, no, it's not necessarily working via the opioid system, but it is working at that neuroimmune interface, which actually has downstream effects on the opioid system. So are we talking here about things which, I I guess one of which the conditions is um, complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS? Is that the sort of aspect of amplification that you're Mm. talking about, or is it just normal chronic pain? Yes, to both. Okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it is normal chronic pain. Um, always involves um, a degree of glial activity and the degree of that glial activity um, is associated with the degree of pain. Now, that doesn't mean we just go after the neuroimmune interface and think we're going to fix chronic pain. I just want to say that. Mm. But it is uh, there is definitely glial activity associated with amplified pain responses and that is where they're looking at new drug development um, where, you know, looking at dampening down say toll-like receptor 4 activity that then you know drives glial cell activity or glial activity and then increases inflammation into the synapses which then you know amplify that chronic pain response so they are working on this in um, with drugs they haven't found anything that's um, particularly good as a pain medicine in this area, but we have those tools. We have those tools already. And I think that we should start using those tools as part of what we do. If we're going to narrow down and take a very biomedical approach, well, then let's use the tools that we do have. You mentioned TLR4, toll-like receptor 4, Ananda. Are you talking here about the importance of gut health with regards to um, resolving pain? Yes, in part. Um, I think that gut health is uh, critical to, um, particularly with some chronic pain, like uh, functional pain issues, IBS, um, fibromyalgia, um, vulvodynia, 
painful bladder syndrome, then the the health of the the whole gastrointestinal system is fundamental. But with the toll-like receptor four, what I'm talking about is the, and I think we discussed this briefly last in the first part of this, was the impact of um, uh, damps and um, a danger, sorry, um, pathogen-associated molecular patterns, damps, PAMPs, xenogen-associated molecular patterns, but I also talked about behavioural and cognitive-associated molecular patterns. So things that tri- oh, you know, trigger, if you like, that or that the toll-like receptor for recognises, which then have an impact on um, glial activity. So, yes, if that's a pathogen or um, a, a xenobiotic that is associated with the gut, then that would impact on perhaps on glial activity and then on pain amplification. Um, but, or if that's a thought process, and if you think about IBS, and I put IBS in the realm of a functional disorder that's associated with chronic pain. Oh, yes. If you talk about the association with IBS D, for example, where anxiety might trigger an episode, well, what thought triggered that anxiety that then triggered that episode? Yes, yes. Uh, so you can see the association there. So, yes, the toll-like receptor 4 is in, involved in you know, what happens in the gut and whether the, the things that happen in the gut activate that. But I think it's broader than that as well. When we're talking about other conditions that are stress-driven, do you employ these anxiolytic-type herbs even though it may not be a major symptom of the trigger of their pain, for instance, something like rheumatoid arthritis, where the most, you know the the depression is seen as a secondary sort of thing. Most certainly, um, because the other thing is when I'm talking about um, chronic pain, I can't divorce that, of course, from the underlying disease drivers, yeah. and you have to address those. But with chronic pain, there's kind of three aspects that I look at, and I've talked about incoming danger signals. I've talked about modulating the neuroimmune interface, but the third aspect of that is increasing descending inhibition. So that is um, essentially modulating pain perception and, if you like, increasing safety perception. And if anxiety in any type of pain is something that is associated with an increase in pain perception, then I want to modulate that. I want to dampen that down and and increase safety perception. So I would use things like kava and and, and anxiolytics in that case to increase safety perception, essentially. So you mentioned decreasing descending inhibition. Are you talking about inhibiting the stress response back to, to which amplifies a pain response? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, sorry, I've said um, we need to increase descending inhibition. I don't know that sounds yeah. unusual. Yeah, so um, what that means, it's not just about stress. Descending inhibition is all the pathways that help um, with endogenous pain modulation. Yeah. So they might be um, opioids, um Enkephalin, serotonin, GABA-associated pathways that actually either directly or indirectly uh, act on the the interneurons or the primary afferent fibre terminals to dampen down incoming um, danger messages, increase safety messages. Yeah. Um, so we would use that, and if if 
anxiety or um, was part of that that was driving that or there we've, we could use things that increase GABA and, and work by that GABA pathway to dampen down danger signals and increase safety signals. I'm kind of making it really simple because it gets very complicated. Yeah. Would magnesium, you know, the poster mineral of pain relief, is this where magnesium comes into play with protecting nerves, you know, its inhibition of anxiety, stress or stress or um, symptoms? Is that where magnesium plays a part? Yes, it can. But I would put that back in... Um, um, reducing danger signals from the periphery. Gotcha. Yeah, so it works, you know, by um, working on calcium channels, but yeah. also, of course, is one of the cofactors in all those neurotransmitter formations. So, you know, I kind of see magnesium as just like a little bit of a, um, a blanket that doesn't necessarily have one specific action, but it just helps support and dampen down across the board. In it um, by itself, it's not going to be terribly effective. But as part of a, a therapy or a treatment plan, then it's going to be an important part of that. Mm. And the other thing about magnesium that I think the form counts, the type of magnesium, because you want to make sure that you're getting as much out of your magnesium as you can, because glycine is involved in that descending facilitation. Uh, sorry, descending inhibition. Yeah. Um, and with chronic pain, you see reduced glycine receptors, reduced serotonin, opioid, all of those receptors are dampened down. So you want to make sure that there's enough substrate there, if you like, to encourage the glycine receptors to be filled and, and then work on descending inhibition. So if you've got magnesium diglycinate, you've got a two-in-one there. Mm. And um, so I always like things that you can get more benefit yeah, from giving one one supplement or one nutrient. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's there's so many different forms of magnesium and, and this is where you get into the ligand having an action as well as the mineral. So people always think the mineral is the acting, the acting thing, but sometimes it can be the ligand, as you mentioned, the glycine in this instance, that can have an accessory action to what you're trying to achieve. And so that's why you'd choose that one over maybe, you know, magnesium oxide or even magnesium citrate. Whereas if yes. it was, you know, a, a mitochondrial type disorder, you might favour magnesium citrate. You know, that sort of balance. And I think we can become quite a little bit sophisticated about the way that we use um, the ligands, um, as you say, using them for different, um, you know, different benefit in different conditions. Mm. Now, you mentioned also the glial cell activation. That's obviously part of the immune system. Is this where we're going to be getting into the endocannabinoid system and the actions of herbs on the immune system? Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about cannabis because in vitro, even herbs like echinacea can have actions on the endocannabinoid system. Is this where you start to employ other herbs that work on the immune system? Absolutely. Um, I think that they're quite uh, important part of um, modulating that that central neuroimmune interface. Um, I don't use, uh, as you say, it's not about cannabinoids. I think Justin Sinclair is the person to talk to oh, about that. Yes. I have heard you <laughs> talk to him before, which was fascinating. Um, but probably my um, go-to nutrient for um, this is um, vitamin D. Ah. So I use a lot of vitamin D 
Um, and then I might employ some immune modulating herbs. Sorry, not specifically for the endocannabinoids, though, mm. but I might use um, employ some immune modulating herbs. But I tend to use quite a bit of vitamin D, um, and then in combination with other, well, I call them. Um, brain health herbs, if you like, because there is um, increased neuronal damage and neuroinflammation and therefore decreased analgesia in across the brain in chronic pain, in the prefrontal cortex and in the raphe magnus, all the way across the brain. So if we, depending on the individual, but if we keep the brain healthy, um, then we're going to get better outcomes with chronic pain. So I employ those kind of kind of brain health category that I have, which is curcumin, saffron, resveratrol, N-acetylcysteine, vitamin D and omega-3. So they're all my go-to for that neuroimmune interface and for the health of the neurons um, and in, in the brain, essentially. Yeah. When, when we're talking about recovery from chronic pain, are we talking really about trying to achieve neuroplasticity? To, to uh, Yes. Yeah. So we're trying to relearn new pathways. What about the damaged pathways? Do we heal them or do we just recircuit them? I think there's both. Um, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, I um, look at the work of Norman Doidge and, and uh, the Brain's Way of Healing. That's one of the books that I, um, you know, did use to actually um, start some of that approach within chronic pain and but he doesn't you know necessarily advocate the use of um, herbs and nutrients but neuro regeneration is certainly part of a potential part of that he uses a lot of imagery and mindfulness and other approaches that work with neuroregeneration or reducing neurodegeneration in the brain um, so I, I apply that work and sometimes I use herbs and nutrients to assist with that process. It's conjuring up more, more and more questions in my mind. So, you know, I guess here is the facility of um, exercise. But I've got to ask the question, when is exercise helpful and when does it do more harm than good? You know, there's the, there's the ricer, obviously, you know, the rest, yeah. ice, compression, elevation and recovery. Uh, sorry, in response, but then you've got to um, weigh that up against the use it or lose it. So when do you start to um, employ exercise and I guess how do you lead into that? Um, well, you would use rice in acute pain where there's trauma or damage um, and even with back pain where there has been trauma that, that's not ongoing or um, then you start to introduce movement as soon as possible. But that movement has to be paced appropriately and um, so that, you know, if you use too much movement, and what actually happens with chronic pain is that some people develop chronic pain because they've been told to rest excessively. And then there's deconditioning, or part of the story of them developing chronic pain is this. There's deconditioning and there's increased disability and then there's fear about movement. And so that becomes part of the problem. Um, And there's lots of work in this area, particularly in lower back pain, that looks at um, what people are being told when they injure their back is actually contributing to the ongoing problem. 
However, too much and too soon um, can increase sympathetic nervous system activity and increase pain. So it is about pacing. And with chronic pain, there's a whole program around graded exercise, which means you exercise to just below the pain threshold. Ah. Yeah, just below. And if that's one minute, you do one minute. And then after a period of time, you might be able to go one and a half minutes or it might be 10 minutes or, you know, but just below the pain threshold and then grade that up as things improve. That's why I love working with exercise physiologists or myos and physios who work in chronic pain because they're all over that. Mm. And, you know, I know some about it. I know the theory about it, but the practical application, given the different condition that people present with, um, you know, you've got to work with someone who's an expert in that field, I think. And again, that's part of a multimodality approach. You have that person there and you work in collaboration with them. Just a quick question on that, um, working to a certain threshold of pain. There's something about that that sort of um, twigs with me about the Irish headache pill. You take it 10 minutes before you feel a headache coming on. Um, How do you know that you're getting to the stage of pain but you're not there yet? Uh, the individual will start to feel pain, and so that's when you stop. So as soon as they start to feel pain, you just go, okay, let's let's leave it there, and we'll we'll pull back. Yeah, gotcha. And look, it might be if they're feeling more pain later, then it might be okay. Well, we'll go. You go down to the point to where the exercise doesn't contribute to either immediate or delayed pain. Gotcha. So it's a little. You've got to work it out. Yeah. It's not just known thing. Yeah. But often people in chronic pain can do more than they think they can um, because there's so... And that's not about a physical response, but it's more about what else is blocking them. Is it their fear of pain or their beliefs about their body being broken or damaged or um, mood, you know, negative affects um, coming in or low self-efficacy? So you find that those are the bigger factors holding people back from movement and exercise rather than actual, in many cases, physical disability. And therein lies a whole therapy on its own. Yes, which is why (laughs) psychologists and physios and EPs are so useful. Right, right. As part of chronic pain. Yeah, well, we say these words, but we don't really understand. You've given us an understanding as to why. So I really thank you for that. I've got to ask you, Ananda, about um, something that I read a story about. I'm certainly not expert on this by any means, but I just read a story and it tweaked my interest. And that is this new sort of discovery of these mini brains in the periphery. I'm wondering about how or, or what's its association with pain sensations What's its relevance to things like, you know, complex regional pain syndrome, where you've got this this feedback loop, this positive feedback loop, the, where the injury is healed but the pain remains? What's the importance of these? Um, I read about that, and they're they're not actually sure about the importance of the mini brains as yet. Gotcha. But if I start to think about, um, if we think about what's happening in the dorsal horn and the brain, and say that. You know, the brain is where we perceive pain, but the dorsal horn is more than just a relay system. It actually has kind of, it's akin to a, a, you know, a computer and it can actually 
dampen down or facilitate messages going to the brain. Maybe again, too, when we think about these mini brains, is there a little, you know, decision making or computational thing occurring there in those mini brains, which actually is deciding on the importance of this danger message Mm. and whether it needs to, um, you know, head into the dorsal horn and then up to the brain. So it's just, just another gateway or a gate system. That's just me speculating, though. Um, I can't be sure. But I just wonder, though, whether these mini brains in part, you know, the answer is maybe not the correct term to use, but whether that has some answers as to why things like mindfulness and things like yoga and Pilates, how they have dramatic effects on pain relief without the use of strong medications or, or even in tandem with those medications, they seem to make them work better. Possibly. Um, it is unknown at this stage, but I'd say that the way that the yoga, um, well, uh, yoga aside, sorry, mindfulness, cognitive behavioural therapy um, and meditation work by increasing descending inhibition. They, ah. they, yeah, that's how they work. And if that in a very small way is happening in the periphery, then perhaps they can work on that um, level as well. So just, um, you know, we've mentioned pharmaceuticals and um, from February 2018, opioids will become S4, that's prescription only in Australia. And this reflects a worldwide problem with opioid addiction and abuse. And um, how relevant are nutrients and herbs in controlling the abuse of opioids and how can they best be used or indeed introduced when you've got an existing problem? I think that um, when I look at medications, it's really you take a detailed history and you think about what what hasn't worked Mm. and what has worked. And often, you know, not often, but sometimes you find that people are on opioid medications and it's just completely the wrong medication for the type of pain. And so then a medication review is worthwhile. But if it does work, you know, I then think, can I enhance that effect to lower the dose or mimic it? And then can withdrawal be attenuated so that a person comes off that medication, obviously, with care um, and a team? But can we work in any of those levels to reduce um, reliance or on, on opioids or any of the other pain medication um, drugs that are used? Um, because opioids, yes, you're, you're right, they're associated with reward, addiction and craving, but they also mm, may worsen chronic pain in the long term. Yeah, yeah. And that whole opioid system becomes less effective with time, so higher, more and more um, opioid medication is required. But one of the big things that is you know, coming out now, and there's some research in both acute and chronic pain, is that morphine metabolites are seen as damps and then act on tonal-like receptor 4 and then increase opposition to analgesia so we and into ah. central sensitization so we see them potentially driving chronic pain mechanisms in the long run so for me from um, I think that getting off opioids as soon as possible is um, critical mm. and there's one group that does that remarkably effectively and that's um, people who have had cancer and on opioids for cancer treatment, um, but they're quite motivated often to get off opioids, um, whereas patients with 
um, and I'm not saying people who've had um, surgery relating to cancer don't have chronic pain, but some of them do. But if we say non-cancer chronic pain, that's where you tend to get more long-term opioid use, like um, endone, for example, mm. or, or it used to be codeine or tramadol. Those medications tend to be more long-term. And that's where I look at can we enhance the, the effect to lower the dosage requirements or can we mimic it and then can we withdraw, be attenuated? And there's some some things like um, some research to show that um, curcumin can attenuate um, um, morphine withdrawal and um, that, so that's, that's a growing um, body of research. It's mostly in animals at the moment. But, you know, I watch those things and just because at the moment they're in animals, it doesn't mean I go, okay, well, maybe I can translate that across. <laughs> you know, it's not that I won't use it. Um, but there's other holistic treatments that can be used. Um, massage comes in there. Hmm. Um, magnesium may increase the effectiveness. Um, and then mindfulness and cognitive behavioural therapy, certainly, and even low-level laser, those are all the treatments that you might bring in mm. um, to help reduce reliance on opioids. But I guess probably I'm not, you know, an addiction. I'm not, I don't work in the area of addiction. So if someone was addicted to opioids, it probably wouldn't be an area that I'd work in strongly. Mostly I see patients who are motivated to come off the opioids and actually are doing that with their um, pain specialist anyway. And then we use other pain modulation techniques to so that their reliance for a pain, as a pain medication isn't required. So I'm, I'm not really an expert in that area, but I will employ all of those strategies that I talked about, including curcumin. There's a big trend in the US using um, a herb called Kratom or Kratom. I'm not even sure how it's said. It's K-R-A-T-O-M. Yeah. And that's the Mitragyna species. And they, uh, it contains alkaloids that has an affinity for opioid receptors and that has been used apparently to help withdraw off opioids. But it's also being strongly abused in the US. Oh, it's, um, of course. And there's side effects <laughs> and toxicity associated with the dosages that are being employed. But it is an interesting herb to watch to see if it can be employed effectively to help with opioid withdrawal. I've got but, one yeah. last quick question just before we go, and that is pharmaceutical medications, um, opportunities and issues. You know, we've seen issues with, for instance, um, dextropropoxyphene. I won't mention brand names, but, you know, widening ST segments in people with heart issues. And indeed, I think it killed a couple of hundred people in the UK and was taken off the market there. They tried to take it off the market in Australia and the company that makes it lobbied and got it reintroduced. You know, we've got massive wholesale issues with opioids, as you say. What about interactions that we need to be aware of when we're using nutrients and herbs? The classic of which would obviously be St. John's wort. But how bad is this interaction? Have you seen horrid interactions or do you actually think that it's um, overinflated? No, I haven't seen horrid in interactions, but I guess probably most of the, the patients that I see are on um, standard, either the, mo the big ones that come through are amyltryptyline, Lyrica and Endone and then um, standard over-the-counter medication. So they're, they're the ones that I see most frequently and um, 
you have to be a little bit cautious sometimes about making sure that there are no drug interactions, but I don't necessarily see significant issues. And in fact, there's even some misconceptions about drugs some of the pain medications, for example, Lyrica, which is called pregabalin, which is pregabalin, sorry, um, people assuming that that's a GABA agonist and so then being very cautious about use for, um, you know, herbs or nutrients that might also be GABA agonists when in fact it's not. It's a calcium channel blocker and and, and it reduces glutamate release and that is widely touted um, even amongst, um, I've heard GPs talk about it as being a GABA agonist. And it's like, well, no, we can incorporate GABA agonists very effectively with pregabalin because we're working by a different pathway, mm. if mm. you like. Why, when medicine is faced with such huge issues with pharmaceuticals, the example, perfect example of which is opioids in pain relief, will they ignore the actions of natural therapies? Um, given that there's some basis of therapy and that they've been shown to be safe? I think that we are well-placed to work in with, um, you know, in chronic pain in with that integrative model. And even though at the moment we're not included at the big table, so to speak, in pain medicine, I think that um, we really have such a huge part to play um, in terms of, not just the herbs and supplements that we use, but also, you know, foundational strategies like diet therapy and lifestyle therapy are so important as part of that chronic pain treatment that I think that we're, you know, the role that we're having and going to have will increase with importance. Well, that's my hope anyway. Mm. (laughs) That's what I'm advocating for. (laughs) Where can practitioners find out more about the treatment of pain? Um, For instance, you're a member of the Australian Pain Society and the International Association for the Study of Pain. Can anybody join these, these associations? Where can practitioners become more involved and aware and educated um, on the aspects of pain? Yes, um, certainly anyone can um, join the International Association of the Study of Pain and they produce a monthly magazine called Pain, uh, not surprisingly, which is quite useful. Um, In terms of the Australian Pain Society, I find that one, um, I don't find the organisation less useful, but I find the information source less useful. But there are some quite good... Uh, articles in their um, quarterly magazine and one in particular was um, a pain specialist who came out and advocated the use of nutrition and mindfulness and medication medication boundaries as part of their holistic treatment of chronic pain or the biopsychosocial treatment of chronic pain is the way that they expressed it. But um, So they are useful. Also very useful is um, I think the New South Wales um, health department has a very helpful um, pain education and pain support network, which has a lot of information and publications to the general public, but also to doctors and healthcare um, practitioners about um, chronic pain. And so I'm happy to send through some of those links and resources um, so that people can find out more and, um, you know, 
upskill, I guess, about mm. the underpinnings that, um, that drive chronic pain. This is going to team up so well with our first podcast, Ananda, and I wish we had time for more because there's so many aspects of pain which are so relevant and we can investigate that. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I urge all of our listeners to please listen to both podcasts and to try and catch up with you if you're in Australia whenever you're giving seminars on this because you look after your patients holistically, and that's what I love, you know. You don't just employ you know, herbs and supplements because it's that bandwagon. You look at all issues so that in the end they get relief of their, their suffering. So thank you so much for taking us through your specialty with FX Medicine and Under. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's been a great pleasure. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.